I, I understand that we were one piece of that puzzle that can be optimizing. And I think it's relying heavily on maybe a couple of things. The first one would be definitely communication among the vets or the producers and us. As communication means clarity on the problem that we are facing and clarity on the type of questions they are seeking it to be answered. That's, I think that's one of, one of the basic steps and something that we might struggle in answer because we here are not quite sure exactly what type of question they are trying to answer. Mm-hmm. So the communication and the clarity, it's, I think it's key for, for us to help with. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacent.us to learn more. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Fabio Vanucci on the topic of the future of the swine diagnostician. And um, I'm super excited to chat with you, Fabio. Welcome to the show. Yeah, no, thank you, Marcia. Thank you for, for having me here. It'll be, it'll be fun. So, as always, um, Dr. Vanucci, if you can just share with us your background, career, and how you got involved in the pig industry. Sure. Well, how I got here, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm from Brazil, as you, as you know, and some, some of your listeners um, may know too. And I was born actually in a metropolitan area of the Sao Paulo state, and I was very young to the countryside of the same state, got my DVM there. My probably second year of the DVM, I started getting involved on the pathologist in general. And after that, starting experiencing more the contact with the swine industry and getting to swine and getting to swine barns and then kind of trying to connect both area that I was passionate about. And and I did my my master degree in Brazil too. That was I actually got my heavily training in pathology and and then my PhD here in Minnesota when it's to infectious disease in pigs and moved back to Brazil and now since 2015 I'm back here in, in Minnesota at the diagnostic lab. Still passionate about 
pigs and infectious disease in particular. Very nice. Yeah. It, wow. Five years already. It feels like it was it, it, yesterday. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So if you can share with us, Fabio, you know, the role of the pathologist and how that has evolved through the years, you know, along the chain, you know, the change in the swine industry and also the diagnostic capacity in the last several years. I would, I would think that, that historically, if you look at the, mostly the, gen, the general role of, of the pathologist at the diagnostic process, and more specifically on the swine industry, and on the old, old days, they used to say that the, some of the lesions or the, the topic that the pathologists are involved in on that, the lesions are, are used to be very sensitive in terms of detected as the chains on the tissues mm -hmm. on the old days, but they weren't that specific. In other words, based on the old school capacity for the diagnostic testing, we do have the ability to look at the lesions and, and, and see a, a path for that for a specific lesion. Let's say, oh, this looks like a bacterial infection or this looks like a virus infection. But we don't have, at that time, we didn't have the capacity for diagnostic specific mm -hmm. which uh, bacteria or which viruses we are, we are, we are talking about. And, and here I'm talking about probably even before the, the PCR, uh, uh, which is a game changer, that's for sure, on the, on the diagnostics, uh, get into the, uh, the play for the, for the disease detection and so forth. So the, with the, with the, when the PCR came along, we now have a more a huge capacity of specifically detect one pathogen and in a very well very sensitive way now that used to be in the past but it's still very specific so you can look at some specific lesions and you can associate the lesions with a detection by pcr and, and that will be more specifically for a virus for example when the old days we started with the gel-based PCR, which may not have the, the high sensitivity that we used to have today, but it's still very specific. So mm -hmm. you're still able to associate the lesions and the detection of a specific pathogen. And after the PCR, now we are moving along, I would say the last, probably last five years or so, four years maybe, we're starting seeing different types of uh, sequencing technology uh, bringing to the table significant different capacity for detection and not only specific detection, but a specific detection that can identify an array, a range, a vast range of, uh, of sequencing related with the specific pathogen or not. I think we went from a, from a sensitive histopathology assessment, from a specific PCR, and now we have specific and sensitivity and now we are struggling on how to interpret the whole mm -hmm. thing right i feel throughout the years that we always keep up with the how interpreted some of the technology and now the technology kind of jumped way over us and we are struggling in keeping up with the machine and keeping mm -hmm. up on how to interpret that and how to associate that with the, how to put that in a puzzle that helps the the, the practitioner or the producer to pretty much optimize the, the, the health of the herd and, and make decisions based on the, uh, on the science and on the 
the diagnostics that we are we are dealing with. That was a long answer. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> no, I love it. This is very cool that you mentioned um, that you know today we probably find more things that we can actually know what to do with it, right? So, so what would be a few examples on that arena? Uh, PCV three, for example, what's going on there? Um, yeah, well, if we're talking about more of this, you know, we're detecting more things that we are able to interpret it. And uh, we can probably separate in two or three buckets of things. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. thinking about sequencing technology and more specifically next generation sequencing, which basically just very quickly background here for those that are not familiar with that is just taking the samples or take, take, taking the virus or bacteria, isolate and sequencing the whole genome of that or sequencing everything that you have in a clinical sample. So, and what we'll do with that after you have the results, you detect a bunch of viruses. Mm -hmm. And the, the bucket that I was gonna mention that, there is the disease investigation where you have the clinical samples, it could be tissue, nasal swabs, or whatever it is, and you sequencing everything that is in there, technically everything that is in there, and then you come up with a bunch of viruses, PCV, PERS, you, you can, and even viruses that are not related with the disease. Actually, most of the viruses are not be related with the mm -hmm. etiology of the disease that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And most of the sequencing will be host sequencing, right? Because we are sequencing things from the pig. Mm -hmm. so the first thing, we are removing the 99% of the samples that, of the sequencing that we got from the pig. So that will be the disease investigation bucket. You may have some lesions, but you are not quite sure what you're looking for. It might be something new, PCB3, a few years ago, or it might be something uh, that are not new, but are presenting in a different way. You may have a variant, a PERS variant, that it's presenting a little different, perhaps a little with a little more CNS signs that you want to investigate. Is there a new virus there, or is it just a new variant of PERS that is presenting a different? That would be the disease investigation bucket. The other two buckets uh, will be, you have a virus isolate, PERS, flu, and you wanna sequencing the whole genome of the virus to compare with the previous virus or to starting building a database to have, instead of having a piece of the genome to compare it and now going to the first will be, or five, now you have the whole virus. So you can compare with a more confidence what would be the differences between the virus that you have a couple years ago and the virus that you have right now. The third bucket and, and that we are starting exploring more, which is a little bit more complex, is on the bacterial world, where you have the bacterial isolate and you want to sequence the whole genome of the bacterial, of that specific bacteria to, to explore what type of virulence factors you are detecting on this strain that you wouldn't be detected on the strain from last year on a strain that are behaving clinically different from that one. And when you're starting on, on going on that direction, you're starting talking about uh, strains that might not be causing disease, commensal strains, for example, strep suis, which has a bunch of commensal strains that are colonizing the upper respiratory tract, but are doing pretty much nothing disease-wise. And then you have one specific strain or one specific event mm -hmm. that you were able to detect it, those strains on the brain, on the heart, and pretty much all over the body. And you want to specifically explore why that specific strain are behaving different clinically. 
hope that makes some sense. Yes, yes. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for going over that. And um, as you think about this topic, Fabio, what is the role of the pathologist or diagnostician for the decision-making process to optimize heart health? Well, I, I, I see that as a, as a one piece of the decision process. And, and of course, most of the decision-making decision process would be at the hands of either the veterinary practitioner or either the producer or either the owner of the system, as you look at as a big picture, as an integration system and, and so forth. So we were, I, I understand that we were one piece of that puzzle mm -hmm. that can be optimizing and I think it's relying heavily on maybe a couple of things. The first one would be definitely communication among the vets or the producers and us. As communication means clarity on the problem that we are facing and clarity on the type of questions they are seeking it to be answered. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, that's one of, one of the basic steps and, 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 and something that we might struggle in answer because we here are not quite sure exactly what type of question they are trying to answer. Mm -hmm. So the communication and the clarity, it's, I think it's key for, for us to help. And, and I, like, I guess uh, uh, what I'm saying, is we are uh, just a piece of the puzzle that can be optimized by increasing that type of communication and, and you know, exchanging information and, and from our side, uh, side, basically experiencing that we have been dealing with and how we can offer what, what type of tools we can offer. And here, uh, and making us a, a little more uh, how we can make that happen from a diagnostician perspective, the communication from our side would be more trying to clarify the strength and the limitations of the specific tests that they are looking for. Mm -hmm. We're going to use tests Y, X, and Z, and what types of strength or limitations we are on that direction in terms of how to interpret it, that data. Right, because if you just receive a sample there without any history behind it, it's tough to figure out. <laughs> it's, it's common, but I mean, yeah, it's like, like I said, communication is key. Communication is key, even from our side, even for interpretation from our side too, and, and understand that the basics of, as I learned for some of the, the mentors, that if you, don't, if you don't know what you do with the result of a test, don't ask for it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> if you don't know how to, how, to, how to interpret that. But. Very good. Any other point there on, on this? Um, oh, I think, uh, I think uh, one of the things that we have been commonly see more, I don't know, maybe more recently, uh, uh, mostly, I would say mostly just because of the format of the industry where you have, a reduced amount of vet that are responsible for a large amount of animals. Mm -hmm. So you are uh, those integration systems or, or you have responsibility of one vet, vet practitioners that are responsible for several thousands of sows. And of course, they are not every time or every day being able to collect every single sample to submit to the lab. So they have to rely on training crews in the farm mm -hmm. that are able to collect it properly and send the, uh, the samples to the lab. Having those crews uh, uh, train it, it's key. And, and, and when I say communication, having those uh, crew also communicating with us 
uh, uh, in terms of how to submit the samples are key. And because of to that type of format that the inter industry are kind of taking shape on the, on the more recent years, sometimes we feel that you have a, like an auto autopilot mode, send mm -hmm. stuff to the lab, receive stuff to the lab, send stuff to the lab, like a visual cycle mm -hmm. that, that, and you'll, you may think that you are getting a big picture by looking at a spreadsheet on an Excel file with hundreds of results, but you might be missing some of the individual particular characteristics of the farm or the system because you are trying to make decisions as a whole, but the quality of the diagnostics or the samples for every single column of your spreadsheet are not there. Mm -hmm. So maybe that will be back for bad data. It, no data is, is better than bad data, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a quality diagnostic investigation and, and results to make decisions out of that, even, even if they're not that much, you may be more confident in making decisions to a system than having a thousands of them and the, the quality is not there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. quality is starting from submission of the samples, quality of the sample to the single uh, label swabs. So you send a swab that are not labeled, you don't know where it's come from, so you have that results. I mean, those, this is a single piece, maybe a single drop in an ocean of information that you have on a spreadsheet. But if you have thousands of drops like this, you're gonna make bad decisions mm -hmm. out of the whole spreadsheet. I don't know if that makes sense. Just yes, it does. It does. Very interesting. I mean, yeah. Yeah, packaging the sample, samples correctly and all those things. Yeah. Perfect. So as you look forward, uh, what's the future of the swine diagnostician? One of the things I particularly have experienced throughout my career so far, which hasn't been that long, it's just ability to adapt, right? So we, we got on this new format or starting moving target of applying or not those sequencing technology and how to make sense out of those data and, and how we adapt to that. And I think the ability to adapt, it's uh, rely heavily on the having a deep understanding of the technology and the understanding means strengths, bullet points of what is the strengths and what are the limitations what type of interpretation I can make out of that. And based on a new technology, it's, it might look very interesting, new, and very attractive, but the bottom line would be how I would apply that to my reality, to my uh, uh, daily routine, and how I can make that translation to the vet practitioner or, or end for the producer. How I can take that piece of the puzzle and make sense for them. I don't know if that's the future, but that's kind of, I, I, I envision that the, the moment that we are living right now, kind of, you know, the, the, the industry is living right now or the, the, the topic that we are discussing here in terms of that we are living right now. And that was the way it is. If you think historically how, when the PCR came along and, and, and different types of technologies came along and how is that applicable or not for our reality? Do you see any uh, new types of um, diagnostics or rapid tests, anything like that right now, or, or that's pretty much? 
if you're looking for, you're going to find that every single day, a new thing coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the important things from the, you know, talking about more diagnostician, and that's our role on, on this whole picture. It's the, how does that would be applied for our reality, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about rapid test. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a concept that is out there for probably 20 years or mm-hmm. even or 15 years. And, and how many of those do we have that available commercially and making and how reliable are those to make decisions out of those, you know? I think it's, it's an area that it's going to keep improving. And at some point, we're going to get there, but I don't see at least right now, how would that be replacing some of the traditional uh, diagnostics uh, investigation uh, strategies such as, you know, histopath and all. I, I, I don't see that right now, especially in terms of making decisions, very important decisions, for example, shipping seeming all over the country based on a negative result from a rapid test. You know? Right. Yeah, that's a big When we're going to get there. I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's something that is out there. It's something that there's always technologies coming in and probably every week you're going to see a new one. Uh, we just have, as a diagnostician, has to be careful and see how that would be translated for the producers or the VEC pr- practitioners. That. Very good. Very good. Now, you know, we couldn't end the conversation without talking a little bit about the biggest event of 2020, sad event and a tough event, but I would be interested in your thoughts as a diagnostician uh, on the whole COVID-19 aspect. Anything you, you'd have done different if you were in charge of the, oh, of the response? Or... I better not. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's definitely an unprecedented scenario that we are facing and everything is, it has been new and changed as we go, you know, kind of, you know, adjusting the as we, as we fight, you know, from a diagnostician perspective and mostly working with food and production animal. Well, first of all, sometimes I feel sorry for those that has to make decisions with very limited data from a diagnostics perspective, right? So from a population level, right? making decision of lockdown, opening up or not opening up and, and based on the diagnostic data that are maybe not there yet how confident they are so they it's a very tough position to be in that's the first thing right and uh, from our area here that work it was interesting to see discussions that we have here in the lab every day hmm. about diagnostic tests false positive false negative you know limited of detection of this they pretty much split over the lab walls to the dinner table for the general public, you are discussing that right. with the, you know friends that you would never imagine they would discuss the diagnostic sensitivity yeah. <laughs> with a friend <laughs> on the street. Yeah. yeah, with a friend on the street. That's something. That's something very interesting from from my perspective that I'm that I'm seeing here, and and I think I think the general general public can can take the advantage of that, and it is a challenge for us in a sense that. How will we, and not for, the, I'm talking about diagnosis, but pretty much for, for the science in general, uh, the communication of the science to the general public, right? Mm-hmm. Your channels have some of that in terms of, you know, communicating with the producer, producers and, and, and more on the general public. And it's a challenge. And it's a challenge that we 
on the scientific community has to face and you know, on how well or how poorly we have been communicating and being clear of the data on the scientific side to the general public. It was interesting to see that and, and it's, a, it's a good exercise for us trying to explain what you do to a 10 year old, you know, things like that, how you make that sense. And that's something that one of, and I should mention that one of the, the, the inspirations of, of, of my career and my, many others, uh, Dr. Bob Marson used to say, so you have to be able to explain what you do every day to your son, nine year old son. And that's, mm. that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And, and, and I think this, if something that this COVID-19 situation has been done, is the you know exercising our brain to make that happen to make that happen and I, and we have experience with some of the stuff that they are they are discussing a lot on that rapid test you just mentioned about uh, there's a lot of if you look at the news there's you're, you're probably gonna find at least ten rapid tests uh-huh. for, and we have been dealing with rapid tests that may not work as we expected for years on animal industry I would say so. Mm-hmm. For us, when we hear about that, we already have that, I would say maybe that implicit bias that, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, we're not going to solve the problem. And there's, a, you know, limitations that you have to consider in applying for a huge population in a mass testing capacity. But I think we can contribute on that for the general public, clarifying those strains and limitations of those silver bullet tests, right? That is going to solve everything. Super I'm rambling around here because yeah. I'm not going. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I love it. Very good. Um, I know one thing we didn't discuss a little bit about was uh, oral fluids, right? And that and how that has changed the the, the way you guys do your work too. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It was uh well, we're we're talking about PCR as a game changer, and definitely from a population level, uh, from a diagnostic population level, oral fluids was was also a, a game changer for for. For that, especially monitoring disease and monitoring freedom of this freedom of disease in a herd, that has been key. It has been and has been consolidating very well in the last you know, I don't know maybe 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 ten years or yeah, and, and or more than that. And uh, yeah, th- that's probably one of the things that we do every day here, and we're still doing that. And and the the use of that, it's. It's just great. It's just something that we, we take advantage of that. And of course, after that, we can, we also uh, been explore other methods of, of uh, population diagnostics uh, that may or may not be applying. But definitely for now, for now, I mean, so far, oral fluid has been very much consolidated on, the, on, on our work here. Very good. Uh, do you see that in uh, being very much used in other countries or not that much yet? The contact that I have the most is uh, Central and, well, yeah, it would be South America and, and, and North America, I would say, in addition to the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And, and my perception is the, the U.S. It probably leading the use of that. I, I do see that in South America, and I would be more specific that I have contact in Brazil, they use that, but not as largely as we use here in the U.S. in terms of monitoring disease. And, and, and uh, I'm sure your next question is, why is that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't have the answer for that. It might be the configuration of the industry. It might be the 
well, the capacity that we have in terms of the network of diagnostic lab here in the US, I don't think we have that anywhere in the world, you know, state labs, the capacity to, to knowing what's going on and monitoring disease. That's a big part of it. There's, there's a, you know, as you, as you know, there's challenges for that in South America and, and other countries. And, and this might be uh, one of the factors that is playing there, but, but, or maybe just, just delaying and picking up the usage of that as a, as a diagnostic tool. Because I, I see five years ago, compared with now, a slow increasing on that, not as large as here in the US, but it's increasing, maybe not as fast as here, but it's increasing. Now, one question that I'm sure you've, you've got in conversations about, and I know I have uh, probably started 10 years ago, is like why Brazil doesn't have PERS or PED. <laughs> I know. So I want to know your thoughts. I want to know what you think about that. I worked there after my, P well, before and after my PED, I worked there in a diagnostic lab looking at the, for disease, of course. So with the training that I had here, and, and, and I would say we are pretty much based on clinical picture and lesions, right? And histopath and all that. So we don't have the monitoring of PERS in every single case that we receive in diagnostic lab in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So we, we do the, well, technically the PERS diagnosis or the investigation based on the clinical picture and the lesions that may be associated with that, considered as a foreign animal disease for Brazil. Mm -hmm. So based on that scenario, when I was there and with the very uh, uh, competent pathologists that shoot there, and there's a lot of competent people working on diagnostic there, we don't have the clinical picture or either the pathologist that suspecting that purse might be there at low levels. Mm -hmm. We don't definitely don't have the monitoring system that we have here in the U.S. to test every single sample. Right. But in terms of clinical picture and outbreak scenarios, we don't have that scenario there. So for a few years ago, we had uh, cases or reports of purse in South America and other countries other than Brazil. And then I do know that Brazil are uh, having more testing and increasing the capacity of monitoring the, the borders uh, with much more efficiency, with the proper you know, diagnostics and, and that. But yeah, that's the experience that I have there and that's the experience that we exchange with people, uh, very competent people working in diagnostics there. So. Definitely, it's not something that we see here, you know, outbreaks uh, and endemic situations, which is kind of the same for PED. I mean, I started seeing more there when I was there after my PhD, and, and, and we, at that time, we're monitoring some of the herds for PED. To, that was after 2013 when it hit the U.S., and also we didn't, we didn't attack that. I mean, basically monitoring that. Again, the monitoring process there is way limited compared to the U.S., but it's based on the you know outbreak investigations. Very interesting. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. Another aspect I like to bring up on conversations on this topic is, despite everything you said on the monitoring on others, is look if you have PERS or PED, you know, meaning uh, ferrin rates, uh, you know, abortions and preemie mortality. I mean, 
Brazil's firing rate and proven mortality are pretty solid. So that's another, of course, more anecdotal aspect to bring to the conversation there. Very cool, my friend. Uh, anything else on this topic before we move to the three questions we ask every guest every episode? No, I think I already, I already talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for. It is time to our famous three. Isn't it time your PERS protocol evolved? Elanco's Prevacent PERS is safe and effective, offering at least 26 weeks of immunity duration against the respiratory form of PERS. As the first and only on-market USDA-licensed vaccine containing a contemporary Lineage 1 field strain, Prevacent is a contemporary solution. Connect with your veterinarian or an Elanco representative to understand how Prevacent can fit your operation. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. Prevacent, it's time for a new perspective. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. What is your favorite pig-related book or resource? I don't know. That would be a different answer that you may get from other, but my favorite resources are people. Mm-hmm network that we build in the swine industry. That's where my first to go seeking information and learning something new is I'm very lucky to have mentors that are just wonderful and and I was able to make a good network on the industry that I can reach out people and and ask questions that or, or, or seeking information that I'm interested in. I mean, that's maybe not a, scientific answer but it's pretty much what i do every week honestly i mean uh, we pretty much learn always learning yeah no i love it it's definitely a first time that someone answered that but i remember a a class from dr bob goodman back at k-state and he taught us that yeah pick up the phone that's 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 class number 101 there on sign nutrition as well you know pick up the phone and call people very good uh, what's your favorite book or resource in general? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have a favorite book because if I said a favorite book, I would be underlining the other ones, which I don't want to do that. So <laughs> you're talking about gender, right? Unrelated. That, not yeah. related. Not related to pigs. Well, I'll pick one that I that I finished last year, by the end of last year, that was probably one of the top five or ten books that I, I I like to read a lot unrelated topics mm-hmm. so the one that no, this one that I was gonna say is that they call talking to strangers mm. it's a wonderful book and I recommend every single person especially these times these times of tensions it's a wonderful book it's uh, from Malcolm Gladwell Gladwell yeah I finished probably in January this year it's uh, talking to strangers that's my favorite one from the last six months. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, he's got a bunch. I, ha- I haven't read that one, but uh, he's got The Outliers and others that yeah, are super yeah. good books. Another one, well, another one that I just finished is Range. I can't remember who's the author, but okay. Range, it's, a, it's another one. It's a good perspective for especially students and DVM students that are looking for increasing their range of learning and knowledge. That, that's how important is that? So, right. Because today we're so specialized, but knowing some of the gen- general aspects, right? Yeah, it's, yeah it's how I, basically the book, probably the subtitle of the book is how generalist people succeed in a specialized word. Mm-hmm. world. It's, it's very nice. It's very nice. 
Very cool. Very cool. And then lastly, what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? But ask questions will be the first one, bullet points. Mm -hmm. Leave the ego outside the farm. Mm -hmm. Will be along with the ask questions. Maybe leave the ego and then ask questions. So if you leave the ego, you're going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Eager learning. I think it's another one. And being more specific about maybe on the diagnostician or well, you can extrapolate for the clinicians, if you will, uh, that the good clinician or good, good diagnostician or the best ones are, are not the ones that diagnose or detected rare disease at the first looking. Are mm -hmm. always the ones that don't miss the common disease at the looking. So mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, that's one thing that I learned way, way back in the days and things like kind of trying to carry on. So you don't need to diagnose rare stuff when you look at that, but you, you have to have the ability to not missing the common ones when you look at it. Mm -hmm, and it just mm -hmm. comes with experiencing, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, not trying to be creative on what, what is the conclusion, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. Very nice. I love those. And um, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Vanucci. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you. It was, was fun. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we even gonna have some controversial topics of the global swine industry. So you can leverage that knowledge in your day today. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our wait list. We'll talk soon.